0: Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent, but this week I'm in Brussels, doing the Brexit thing on both sides of the North Sea, while Tony's on leave. And
1: I'm Colm O'Mongoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London
0: and here in Dublin. So at last, the future relationship talks are underway. We'll look at what we know at the end of week one, look ahead to the rest of this month's process and try and separate the breakfast diplomacy from the Brexit diplomacy. From
1: David Frost's patriotic sausage, egg and beans to the dirty rumour that Michel Barnier starts the day with a bowl of Frosties, we'll tell you what's really important about these talks.
0: We'll point out the cod from the red herrings in the main areas of dispute, fish for clues on the level playing field, give our own adequacy decisions on the data flow from both sides and may even make an equivalence ruling of our own in the fields of guff, spin and hype. And we'll talk to former EU
1: ambassador to the US, David O'Sullivan, who was also the Union's Mm -hmm. Director General for Trade, for his view on the current situation.
0: And we'll chat a little about what we know of the UK government's latest position on the Ireland Protocol. But first, Sean, you're back as
1: former Europe editor in your old stomping ground of Brussels... Good to be back, familiar scenes, tense scenes before talks, possibly going to go on to the wire late nights.
0: Yeah, all coming back. It's all wonderful. I'm just doing nothing but munching croissants and swilling Belgian <laughs> beer and all those other vices back to the uh, I thought the vices was German buildings. beer. Go on, anyway. <laughs> ah, this vice end surely. No, it was, it's good to be back. Good to see old friends. And I uh, wish I could say it was good to be back in the commission building, but uh, no, not really. Uh, a bit of hanging around involved, as, as always. Uh, but they were, I suppose merciful to the hacks in a certain sense, because they kept a lot of this uh, in the dark, in the tunnel, and let the negotiating teams uh, get on with it themselves. Uh, There was a very, very short piece of videotape released of the round table and a grip and grin between uh, Michel Barnier and David Frost on Monday when they arrived, all of 55 seconds. That's about half of the length of a normal television report. So every frame uh, was used by those of us who were interested in the brexity stuff i uh, didn't see much of it uh, going out on continental television has to be said uh, but then they got into the talks process they had a that sort of bilateral meeting between barnier and frost then they brought in their negotiating teams sat at this humongous round table inside the commission and laid down a few ground rules i guess the the process uh, and how they were going to work ahead. But then for the two days after that, they went to a conference centre uh, in downtown Brussels on the Mont des Arts, very nice place for um, taking photographs overlooking the city, overlooking the Grand Place and all the really historical parts of Brussels where the Belgian government have built a semi-underground Conference centre. So that bunker-like setting uh, is where the actual negotiations took place. And the teams, they' were pretty chunky teams. There was uh, just over hundred came over from uh, Britain, augmented by uh, local staff at the uh, UK mission uh, to the EU uh, here in Brussels, uh, and they were joined by counterparts from the EU. Uh, and then they broke up into smaller groups. they were looking at 11 different sectoral areas. Uh, the EU was represented by people from the task force UK. They're the people who are dealing uh, directly with this negotiations under uh, Michel Barnier's direction. Uh, each negotiator from there was paired up with a buddy from the relevant directorate general of the European Commission. So there are 22 DGs represented during these talks. So they're all very uh, comprehensive in terms of the teams. And right. then it wasn't until uh, Thursday that we actually got any readback from what was going on. Well,
1: is that encouraging because At the end of the withdrawal agreement talks, we saw them going into what was known as the tunnel, which was, in theory, a media leak-proof environment in which they could engage seriously without domestic populations being whipped up on either side of the sea into a frenzy over you know, intolerable compromise or anything else. Now, uh, at this stage, we have coronavirus, we have uh, the migration crisis, we had the launch of the European Green Deal, which at least provided other meat for any journalists who were in town to cover this. But should we be encouraged by the seriousness of intent that this semi-tunnel suggests?
0: Yeah, I I think we should because uh, both sides... Uh, And and in terms of their public uh, statements, let me just say both sides were very praiseworthy of the other, of their professionalism and their commitment and the tone and the manner in which the talks were carried out. Yes, there were disagreements. Wow, wouldn't it be amazing if they agreed everything on day one? But, you know, you leave that aside. What was the actual negotiating style in the room? And the style was good. Uh, The uh, communication between the sides was good. They're all... uh, as I said, backslapping and praising one another, and they've only just started the process. Now, we all know it's headed for some very tough days ahead, but it's a good thing, I think, that these talks got off to a professional start because there is an awful lot of ground to be covered. And if they can do it in a professional way, that normal trade negotiations, normal inter-country negotiations take place, uh, and the type of negotiations that the EU is doing day in, day out with countries around the world. If things carry on in that spirit, that's good. Eventually, the politics are going to intrude. Everybody knows that. Uh, but let's get the technicals out of the way and try and do the stuff that can be done first. And we've got a, a bit of a clue uh, as to how that might be operating from Barnier in the um, by way of a, a tweet uh, early on in this process saying that what they were trying to do was look at the areas of convergence in the negotiating mandates that is the stuff they're all agreed on uh, the areas of divergence the stuff they don't agree on and then a new term new fresh new for Brexit Republic the grey areas uh, that's the the skip That's what the we middle. specialise in We specialise we love grey areas and uh, the grey areas are areas there they don't agree but they might agree and things are possible so so uh, Between the uh, stuff that they agree on, the stuff that they might agree on, I think a fair amount of ground has been covered. It's the stuff that they don't agree on, of course, uh, that uh, is where all the attention has been focused and where Barnier um, delivered all of his
1: uh, strongest lines. Well, within the grey areas, perhaps we may find the landing zones, but nothing was assured in terms of the... I suppose, tenor of these talks beforehand. We had uh, the preamble of a bad-tempered press conference from Michel Barnier in response to the UK's equivocation over the implementation of the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. Before that, we had David Frost's speech in Brussels. Telling his audience how Brussels didn't fundamentally understand the UK's desire for sovereignty. And then this was all served up on a plate, literally in a photograph in the Daily Telegraph, of David Frost's patriotic breakfast, the distinguishing feature between an English breakfast and an Irish breakfast being potentially there the, the the baked beans. We saw that in advance of going in, but that was really just a bit of a drum roll to silence.
0: Yes. There was a drum roll to silence. And it was interesting the, the way this thing was being built up. Even back in London uh, last week, they had been quite keen to talk up uh, the fact that they were going to announce the uh, US trade negotiation mandate on Monday, the very day that these talks in Brussels were about to start. Now, of all the days in all of the year, do you really, really, really have to pick the day you start? trade talks with your most important trading partner to roll out your uh, plans for trade talks with the Americans. Of course, no, you don't. Uh, Why would you do it? Just to annoy people. But having locked themselves into that bit of um, uh, media round, the British seemed to pull back from it because they really didn't seem to make much of this American uh, trade offer. And uh, it, it fell a bit flat, really. and uh, they they didn't carry on using it as a a sharp object to jab into the soft flanks of the European Union they just seemed to switch to a more professional line and that's why we got that mutual admiration society on Thursday where everybody thinks everybody's wonderful
1: Right, we did of course have the Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan doing his own bit for uh, advertising EU-US trade links saying a mini deal was possible and sounding tremendously optimistic in an area where there hasn't been much grounds for optimism before this after the collapse of the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, also known as TTIP, the subject of much uh, discussion stroke conspiracy theory stroke debate.
0: Yeah, I mean there's, TTIP is an ongoing issue and uh, if we remember back as far as um, an Irish presidency in, what was it, 2013, they got going with the, the whole TTIP uh, process and then there was this whole well, new to us, or to, to most of us I guess at that time talk about tariffs and non-tariff barriers and standardisation of uh, regulations. And really the uh, discussion back then was, you know what, tariffs are so low between the EU and America now that abolishing them really isn't going to make much difference at all to the economy. Uh, It's not going to make much uh, change in terms of the uh, flow of goods. Um, It's really all about investment. And in particular, it's about product standardisation and rules, um, the kind of rules that allow you to put a place, a product on the market, which we've been talking a fair bit about in this podcast. But in terms of the transatlantic area, they were talking about having US standards and European standards converging in order to gain global power. And back then, the TTIP process was being run out of the US National Security Advisor's Office, uh, not out of the Trade Department, because they saw this as a, a really important piece of strategic Leverage, particularly against the Chinese, and the Chinese saw it precisely as leverage being used against them. And we've seen that starting to come back into the debate now in the recent fracas over 5G and Huawei's role in that. But the idea of convergence on regulations uh, regarding the products and services was to give Europe and the US leadership or continued leadership in setting global standards. And Uh, that's why it was important. And that's why the idea of Britain not having anything to do with these kind of EU standards and global standards does seem a bit strange because Britain, the EU and the US are going to continue to be Britain's major partners. And if they're trying to resist the idea of being a rule taker, well, they might end up trying to resist being a rule taker from a single rule book that consists of EU and US standards.
1: And we'll get into that with uh, David O'Sullivan, the former EU ambassador to the US later, who was the uh, trade chief, uh, the trade director general in the commission as well, who touches on US conditionality uh, and also the difference between the Brexit talks being focused on high alignment into potential divergence as opposed to the usual trade talk of coming from a point of divergence into a point of alignment. But all that fascinating stuff in a while. So while it was there, Sean, while the talks were playing out, we mentioned, there at the outset that fish, level playing fields, all of these kind of things are coming into play. Did we learn anything during the week? Was there any more indication as to how some of these things will be dealt with or at least how people will engage with each other and bring to light what the remaining grey zones are in these areas?
0: No, uh, we didn't. Uh, they, these were just set out, these four areas were set out in pretty stark terms as these are the real hard cases. This is where the, the, the hard stuff c- kicks in and it, it's principled objections from each side, profound uh, objections from each side, uh, philosophical in the case uh, of the British, apparently that's a word David Frost uh, likes to use a lot uh, in these uh approach that the British are taking. And the the problem with having these kind of fundamental differences principle is that it's really hard to make compromises on them. It's not like you can give a little bit here and a little bit there and try and patch something together. Uh, if there's a, a fundamental philosophical difference about the role of the European Court of Justice or the role of the uh, European uh, Convention on Human Rights, governing information flows uh, in the field of the fight against crime—you're dealing with some pretty fundamental concepts, uh, notably the protection of the rights of individuals when they face process, law and order process that could result in them uh, being imprisoned, or governing the data flows of sensitive personal data such as DNA uh, information between police databases. Uh, you know, where's the compromises there? Uh, The British say they're committed to high standards in these areas, and I'm sure they are. But the European uh, side, and particularly the European legal system, likes to have all these things nailed down, likes to have them all written down, and likes to have them codified, and likes to have a legal basis for its action, and the legal basis that they have is both that uh, European Convention on Human Rights uh, and also European law itself. And the argument that they've long made, of course, is that the only authority, judicial authority that can interpret European law and the meaning of European law is uh, the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, not some kind of arbitration panel uh, that will be cooked up or some offshoot of the joint committees uh, that are being set up. So, How do you reach compromises on fundamental issues like that? Uh, The British, for their part, seem to not want any kind of a deal that has any reference to European law as the reference point or European practice as a reference point for what should be done, which again strikes the European observers as somewhat curious because both Britain and the EU are starting off from this convergence point that they all have the same standards right now, and they all are that European standard. So, you know, in logic, it seems to be the case that it would make sense to start with that as your reference point. And that's where you measure divergence or convergence from. Uh, but the British sides uh, seem not to want to have anything to do with that uh, and are looking for the maximum degree of, of separation so that their own uh, institutions... Uh, rules, laws, etc., uh, would be autonomous, and uh, so would the European Union's. And near the train would meet, apart from in the Joint Committee.
1: Right. Well, we actually recorded another interview this week, but we're not going to put it out till next week. It's with uh, Catherine Day, the former Secretary General of the European Commission, and we'll be hearing some of her thoughts. On precisely why Europe has such a legalistic approach uh, in in its dealings with potential trade partners and on, on on issues generally, in terms of the press conferences that were held, Sean, there was initially flagged that there was going to be a joint Michel Barnier, David Frost press conference to happen. Um, yesterday afternoon at the conclusion of the talks. It then came out then that David Frost wouldn't be taking part in that press conference, that there would be a separate briefing held um, by the UK in the, uh, the, the building formerly known as, I think, their, their Perm Rep. And Barnier went ahead and he had his own uh, briefing. So what way did that pan out? What did we learn from those post-talks briefings? What was their tone uh, in terms of teeing up the coming weeks and months?
0: Well, the the tone was pretty much, as I'd said out at the outset, that they were both sides were essentially singing off the same hymn sheet. uh, Or as the British sources were putting it, uh, that there is a uh, an agreed narrative of what happened during the week. So they're all satisfied that what happened happened and uh, they're all satisfied that they all dealt with each other in an honest, open transparent, business-like, professional and courteous manner. Was that that
1: hard given that it was fairly much preliminary stuff? I think it was, you know, people relating the contents of each other's mandates to one another. Did it get more engaged in that, do do we know?
0: Uh, no, as far as we know, it didn't get that much engaged. I mean, once they can see the areas that they can uh, firm up areas that there's uh, commonality on, and I think we you know when we looked at the negotiating mandates last week, we could quite readily see areas of, uh, alignment or common uh, positions that you could reach agreement on fairly fast, but they're not at that stage yet. I mean, normally in trade talks, one side makes an offer and then the other side sends back a counter offer and it's ping pong back and forth until you get a deal readied up. We're not at that stage yet, so we're going to have to have uh, a few more uh, rounds, but they only sketched out the rounds up until June. Um, as you know, the way it works, the next round starts on the 18th of March uh, and that will be over in London. So maybe at that point, the British might decide to do be the ones who give the on-the-record statement about what happened uh, at the talks and then whatever background briefings uh, may or may not come from the EU or the EU might decide to do... Uh, upfront throughout this process, and the British might have decided that for whatever their own communications purposes they're not going to do uh, the upfront um, sort of communications on this. Again, we have to wait and see. Uh, another date that we did get uh, stood up is the date for the first meeting of the Joint Committee, um, and that is the overarching body to look at the implementation of the withdrawal agreement uh, and try and sort out other issues as well. Uh, that is to meet. On the 30th of March, and that first meeting uh, will be in London as well. The Commission said we offered it uh, to the UK side for them to have it first. They're planning about four meetings of that joint committee uh, this year uh, to uh, see what progress is being made. This is right. the one that's being jointly chaired by Michael Gove and Mara Sefcovic, who is the European Commissioner. In charge of what they call over here inter institutional relations and horizontal issues. Uh, in other words, uh, fixing things between all the various specialities. Oh, that, 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 that's EU what hor- and horizontal issues
1: are, is it? It's not. It sounds, it's it's always not sounds lying like a euphemism a for. Older. No, it sounds like a euphemism for sleeping arrangements. I was just going to say. Interestingly enough, a colleague was telling me that in Phil Hogan's remarks during the week, he was going to address a, a number of issues in a speech and the speech that was given uh, was not the same as the speech that was Funny that, scripted isn't it? and there was a more moderate tone in the speech as delivered, and there's always this thing in journalism, check against delivery, but it was more moderate in tone as it was delivered than maybe some of the utterances for the tone of them heretofore, which has been a kick in the ankles to the UK on a number of occasions. So,
0: in terms it's, it's of... It's almost like a journalist writing two versions of an article and not deciding it <laughs> for the last minute, but not that that ever happens, of
1: course. Not that that ever happens. So, <laughs> so when Michel Barnier stood up to make his speech... Was it more Phil Hogan in writing or Phil Hogan in delivery in terms of its tone? And, and what was its content, in fact, as he as he gave the summing up on the look ahead?
0: It was much more Phil uh, Hogan in tone than uh, in writing, and then fairness to Barnier, I I can't think of um, occasions when he's really uh, put the boot in uh, in speeches and stuff. Yes, he's had uh, one or two little uh, hot under the collar moments, but in general, he uh, operates in uh, a fairly restrained, gentlemanly way, uh, professional and courteous kind of a way. Even
1: more conciliatory than than some members of the commission or the council in in the past. He was the person who sort of Poured the kind of the, the cold water or the dial down the temperature at key points in the negotiations often.
0: Exactly. If you're looking for somebody to put the boot in, uh, he's not necessarily the guy. He will be the calm, clear, technocrat person in charge. It uh, doesn't get involved in the scraps, um, but will, I'm, I'm sure, allow other people to do that from time to time. And I think the British side are doing that as well, although Mr Frost seems a fairly combative character in his own right.
1: Right. Uh, in terms of what uh, Michel Barnier and, uh, and others in Europe were getting annoyed about, about this whole discussion of the implementation of the um, Irish protocol with regard to friction at the border and movement of goods and checks on the moving from GB into Northern Ireland, Did we learn any more about that? Did we get any clarity on that? Did we know what the UK's definition of frictionless is and whether that marries with the European idea of uh, adequate checks? Are we anywhere near clarity on that after this week?
0: Well, we are clear that um, there's going to be friction. Um, There ain't no such thing as frictionless given the Uh, withdrawal agreement. Uh, The question to be decided in these talks is how much friction there is, uh, not will there be none at all. Uh, Barnier started out in his uh, discourse well before he got anywhere near reporting back what had happened in the talks, uh, making the point that what has been agreed already has been agreed, uh, and that includes the Irish protocol. This is not just uh, something that was written down on a bit of paper to be forgotten about. This is something to be implemented this is an international agreement it's been ratified by the british parliament uh, and is therefore uk law uh, as well it's also been ratified by the european parliament so it's a a, an international treaty between two parties and it also uh, has effect uh, through uk law which of course means uk civil servants are obliged to obey the law and follow the law so he was reminding uh, anybody listening which i suspect really meant uh, p- political actors and their uh, political assistants and our special advisors rather than necessarily civil servants who do seem to be beavering away in the background if the documents from the Northern Ireland Civil Service in particular uh, are to go by where they are requesting money for customs facilities and requesting ministerial authorization to do this, that and the other that are required to implement uh, A, the law of the land and B, this international agreement. But Barnier was also saying that, uh, and as said before, we are going to monitor, we being the EU, are going to monitor uh, the implementation of what has already been agreed as we go along in these talks. And I think just not spelling it out explicitly, but letting it hang there, that uh, failure to make progress on implementation Uh, will have some bearing on the type of talks uh, that go on here. So uh, he is definitely going to be looking for action on the British side, and that's what I think this first meeting of the Joint Council is also going to be uh, exploring. Now, we did have those uh, stories in the newspapers the other week uh, about trying to find ways around the law, getting the new uh, Attorney-General, Suella Braverman, to get some new legal advice uh, that would give them cover for not... Uh, setting up the kind of customs and SPS checks that are required uh, under the UK law and the international treaty Uh, but the uh, official response from Downing Street and from senior officials engaged in this process is no, we uh, will abide by the law, we will implement uh, what we have agreed to, uh, we, and we always do that. So that is the official stated position, whatever about the newspaper articles, which does, of course, raise the question of why are they hopping that particular ball at this particular time, and how much uh, of that ball hop is politically sanctioned, uh, and to what, uh, how high up the food chain it's being politically sanctioned.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it could be one of these things in a negotiation. It's just an easy give. You make noises about not implementing something that you've already committed to implement. And it looks like a concession then when you agree to do what you've already agreed to do. and it, it, yeah. it, it all works in the general choreography uh, of, of things like that, maybe. You
0: it know? depends on who you're selling it to, whether it's internal or external. But uh, certainly as far as yeah. the Brussels, Brussels machine is concerned, what has been agreed has been agreed and has to be implemented regardless of what is going on in these trade talks, uh, because at the end of the year, Britain leaves the single market and the customs union uh, under all circumstances. And again, the British side have been very keen to uh, impress upon their listeners that they are leaving uh, at the end of the year. And so, uh, in Barnier's view, whatever has been agreed must be implemented and there needs to be uh everything has to be in place. And that uh, remark was uh, addressed to the uh, private sector as well, to businesses and ordinary citizens. And he's saying, look, there's no time for complacency here. Everybody has to be prepared for a fundamental change because we're in this kind of phony war period now where Britain's left the EU, but the transition period means nobody's really noticed it on the ground. But come the 31st of December... They're gone from the single market and the customs union. And if they can't reach any kind of uh, additional agreements in this talks process now, this new process, then uh, things do default to the effective WTO rules, plus or minus whatever uh, mitigating agreements are put around those to try and keep the wheels moving.
1: All right. Okay. This week, last Wednesday, there was a number of high profile European figures who would have been prominent in the council and the commission in town they were speaking at the 250th anniversary of the College Historical Society that's one of Trinity College Dublin's debating societies that was celebrating a significant anniversary 250 years old and the Institute of International and European Affairs and the HIST as it is known came together and brought Herman van Rompuy together he's former president of the European Council Romano Prodi, former head of the European Commission David O'Sullivan who's a former auditor of that debating society And also EU ambassador to the US And also Catherine Day Secretary General of the Commission as well So we recorded interviews With both Catherine Day And David O'Sullivan We'll be hearing from Catherine Day Next week But this week we're going to talk To David O'Sullivan And I asked him what his assessment Of the current state of play was In the talks between Europe and and the UK, because he is a former director general of the Trade Commission. He has engaged in negotiations with uh, South Korea, amongst other places. And he was giving me his perspective on how these talks are going at the moment. So thanks very much for speaking to us on the podcast. This week, we've got David Frost and Michel Barnier meeting across the table. There was some reasonably heated rhetoric before that. David Frost's opinion was that Europe fundamentally misunderstood what was at issue in Brexit for the UK Michel Barnier saying that the UK fundamentally misunderstood how serious Europe was in its intent with regard to the text of the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration how would you characterise relations at the moment is this all just part of the usual cut and thrust or are we coming from a hostile place at the moment
2: I think a certain amount of this is the usual rhetoric that you would expect going into a negotiation. The nature of the Brexit debate is moving from full convergence, perfect integration, to a less integrated state. <laughs> and we, we've never kind of done a negotiation like this before. It's, it's a kind of, we're disassembling something. Um, and therefore this makes it quite complicated um, because of course. The, the British position, and I understand it, to say, well, you know, we can just walk away and there'll be no deal. This is true, but it, is, it, is, it means you go from a situation of perfect integration to a situation of maximum friction. And I think the EU perspective is, well, you can say you want to do that. But sooner or later you're going to have to come back to the table because there are lots of things that aren't going to work. You're dismantling the status quo without putting anything workable in its place, and there'll be too much confusion. Sooner or later we'll have to get back to the table. So I think, from a European, from an EU perspective, that the the threat of kind of proceeding to no deal, even though nobody wants no deal, people want to manage this process in in the most intelligent way possible. Uh, the threat of no deal is. Is something that will is perceived to be re- relatively speaking a temporary state from which we will then have to um, rebuild. So, is it a dead rubber as a threat? I mean, Europe
1: threatening no deal on the one hand, Britain says we can live with that, but Britain mostly threatening no deal as if it's going to bring European industry to bring its own governments to heel, this
2: is not something, this is not a stimulus to which Europe will respond, do you think? I, I, I think it's important to say that it's not in anyone's interest that there be a no-deal. Uh, clearly, uh, we have the degree of integration of the UK into the European Union economy uh, is is such that a no-deal will be disruptive, um, obviously, particularly for this country. I mean, Ireland has a, obviously a specific stake in this, but more generally. Uh, Having said that, I don't think that there is any willingness to say, oh, well, in order to to avoid a a no deal, we can sign up to, you know, whatever it is the UK feels it needs. And I I think... So to that extent, yes, I think the British government is somewhat overplaying the hand that, well, we're willing to walk away. It's not clear to me whether this is really for European consumption or whether this is for domestic consumption. Because, I mean, one of the things that always strikes me as slightly ironic ironic in the, situation, in the present situation is that in certain circles in the UK, the story of the negotiation of the withdrawal agreement by Prime Minister Johnson is he succeeded in reopening the, the withdrawal agreement when, when others said it couldn't be done and he therefore got uh, a better deal. If you actually look at the facts, <laughs> the, the, basically Prime Minister Johnson settled for a deal which, was, which had actually been on offer to Prime Minister May and she had turned down because she felt no, no British government could, could could live with the idea of a border down, down the Irish Sea. So the mythology of saying that uh, no deal, pre- no deal. Threat produces better outcomes. Is, in my view, doesn't really stand up to, to close analysis. But having said that, and, and I think the more important point is, people want basically uh, to try and get to get to yes uh, on both sides, if possible. It is also true that the timing is extremely challenging. To do that in in, in the few months that are uh, ahead of the negotiators
1: is, is tough. Do you think that the projected, the OECD was projecting? A 0.5% downturn in uh, GDP because of coronavirus in the best case scenario. Do you think something like this in the background will help focus the minds on the reality of if all is not well in the trading environment perhaps it's as well to be
2: pragmatic in these situations or do you think that will have any impact? I, I, I can't speak for the, for the, for the, for the UK, of course, uh, but I think on the European side, nobody ever, nobody wants an deal. People would like to, to have a well-managed uh, next phase to the process, as we were keen to get a, a withdrawal agreement to have a well-managed first phase. People want a well-managed second phase. So I think the the, the you know the, the news of an economic downturn will only sort of further reinforce what is the basic European position. Having said that, I, I think it's important to distinguish, uh, or important to to understand that that does not mean that therefore uh, the the EU is in such a hurry to to do a deal that they will be willing to compromise on what has been set out as some of the very basic principles which is the the integrity of the single market uh, and the fact that you cannot give to uh, any third country uh, equivalent benefits which are reserved for for members of, of the of the european union and that's a that's a fundamental principle on which I think there is you know total unanimity amongst the the twenty seven member states so i I don't think that europe is is is, is working you know For a, a no deal situation, I think simply that people are saying well if, if that 's where we end up, and in the in the mind of, of the European Union, this will be more a British choice than it will be a European Union choice because I think the European Union will be be, be willing to engage constructively right up to the last minute, um, but it may be that the, there is a calculus on on the British side that no deal is is a preferred outcome for, for a variety of reasons in which case we will go into a, a no-deal situation after the end of this year, and then we'll have to pick up the pieces uh, you know, in whatever way subsequently. But we will have to find solutions because I, I think trading on, on purely WTO terms and, and, and not addressing all the other issues which are out there, security and defence and justice, home affairs and so on, is it, going to be incredibly messy for, for, for both sides.
1: The time frame has been described so far as ambitious, which seems to be a euphemism for a bit crazy.
2: Well, again, it, it depends what kind of deal you are talking about. If you are talking about a fully comprehensive Canada-type FTA, you know, and and I negotiated uh, the the EU deal with with South Korea, and I followed the other negotiations. I mean, these are 1,200 pages of complex text with annexes and schedules and all kinds of things. That is certainly beyond the reach of of, of the negotiators in in a few months. It's just not possible. What is achievable? I think what is achievable, potentially, is a a slimmed down... uh, uh, Agreement, which focuses on trying to to minimize the degree of friction uh, at the frontier uh, from the first of January, so basically trying to deal with certainly the goods the goods issue and and duty free and and quota free there still will be friction, but it will be less than if you if you have to look at tariffs and and, and so forth um, and then you need to think, well if you can 't do everything in in that period, do you find some way of um, freezing the status quo while you continue to talk about the other issues. Uh, Which, again,
1: doesn't look likely at this stage because the UK has ruled out, for the well, price they the extension. They,
2: they have ruled out an extension of the... Is it now transition the transition period, period or the implementation period? I forget. It depends where you're from. Yeah. yeah. They've, they've ruled out that in a formal sense, but, I mean, I don't think it would be impossible to imagine... Uh, Describing it in a slightly different way, uh, because because you've been able to have a sort of successful uh, first round of negotiations, you need a bit more time, so you you, you... you have a nearly there period. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I I I don't think that's excluded. I mean, of course, at the end of the day, these will be political decisions, and uh, the UK government will have to make up its mind what it you know what it really. Once uh, out of the negotiation, and whether it feels you know this is saleable in terms of the the, the position they have taken uh, previously, but I, I don't think it's beyond the wit of negotiators to to do a first phase negos- sort of bare bones negotiation and to try to buy a little time for, for, for the rest in a, in, a, in a sort of what would then be a third phase. But I, I you know is that possible? I have no idea.
1: Finally then, uh, the level playing field issue, you mentioned that you were involved in uh, the the negotiations with uh, South Korea. Was there any equivalent of the level playing field? How did it play out? Was it a cause of friction? Obviously, they're talking about two very different third countries here, but in terms of agreed standards, in the normal course of events, how much friction does or
2: should that cause? Well, again, the, the normal situation is that you're starting from widely differing positions and you're trying to converge and it has always been uh, there's always been a, a, a sustainable development chapter in our free trade agreements we've always looked at labor standards we've always looked at environmental standards Um, When you're taking say, South Korea and and the European Union, we're not asking the South Koreans to to buy our standards. What we normally do, take as a point of reference, is international standards. So you take the ILO standards or you take international environmental standards, and both sides commit to to respecting those. Uh, If you look at the US trade deals, American trade deals always contain level playing field elements. And in U.S. trade deals, contrary to European trade deals, these are sanctionable. With You can put sanctions if there's a breach, so they are justiciable. How would be a good illustrative example of that, if you can think of one? Well, in, in any American trade deal, you will find, in, 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 the, in, the, in the, the U.S. trade deal with South Korea, they have a commitment to certain principles of labor standards, environmental standards, and if they are not respected, the, 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 there is a... a, a a provision which allows the U.S. to impose tariffs or to impose sanctions. Uh, so it, it, is, it is absolutely wrong to say that you never, you know, these issues are not addressed in, in free trade agreements. They are. Of course, as I said at the outset, the EU, British, the EU-UK discussion is is completely unique because we start from a position of of complete convergence. And obviously it is... And, and given that the purpose of trade deals is to try and sort of maximize convergence, it, it seems very strange to say that the starting point of the of, of the negotiation is the right to diverge completely. Huh? <laughs> this, this, is, this, doesn't, this doesn't add up. Now, having said that, I, I think the EU position is sometimes misrepresented in the UK. It is not saying that the, that the, that the UK uh, cannot diverge or should not diverge. Uh, It is saying that we have an interest in trying to keep the maximum convergence and what is looked for is the right in the event of substantive divergence that the EU feels poses a problem or changes the nature of the deal then to be able to have some form of redress. And as I say, this is not uncommon uh, in, in trade deals of this kind. Uh, How this plays out in in, in negotiation remains to be seen. The UK is saying they don't particularly want to regress relative to the existing standards. So to me, there is scope for for agreement on this if people really want to to find it. But again, uh, what's going to be tested uh, in in these negotiations is the the real political uh, red lines of of both sides uh, as the negotiators try to put together a text that has to be sold at the political level, both in the UK and and to the EU 27. And what would be your estimation of what the what the real flashpoint will be? What will be the most problematic issue, off the top of your head? I, I honestly, I, there, there are you know, there are a number of potentially very difficult issues: uh, fisheries, of course, uh, financial services, um, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, all of these are potential. Uh, Problems, but I I, I wouldn't like to predict uh, as to which of them is going to be more problematic. Sometimes, you know, it's things you have thought less about that suddenly pop up as as a bigger problem. I remember when we started the T-chip negotiations with the United States. I can honestly tell you that nobody, uh, either in the U.S. negotiating team or the EU negotiating team, thought that Investor State Dispute Settlement, ISDS, would become the biggest problem. Uh, because it was seemed to be such a sort of minor part of the, of, of the bigger picture, and yet it turned out to be indeed, you know, one of the things that public opinion in Europe got, got most uh, excited about. You don't know exactly wh- where the, 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 the deepest problems may, may, may or, the, or the, the most difficult problems may emerge. But uh, again, I, I, you know, I, I think a deal is there to be done if people uh, are willing to, to make some compromise on both sides. Time will tell, you know, that will be tested and it will be tested relatively quickly given the tight time frame in which we're negotiating thanks very much for your time much My pleasure. Pleasure. well
1: we'll leave it there for this week Sean, from me Colm and RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin,
0: and from me Sean Whelan, RT's London Correspondent in Brussels, especially. heading for a Eurostar soon goodbye